62. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not remain still. Till her righteousness shines like a light, her salvation like a flaming torch. Here we have the category Zion and Jerusalem in parallel there. And righteousness and salvation in parallel associated with that category of God's people. Because they're the one to whom the servant ministers, well, servant ministers to all of the Lord's people, to the Jacob category, or Israel category. But as a result of the servant's mission, they rise to the Zion or Jerusalem category and inherit salvation. To them, the Lord can come. This verse implies that someone is interceding or praying to the Lord on behalf of Jerusalem or Zion, on behalf of that category of the Lord's people, that category that repents. Who is that person? Probably the same one that's speaking in verse 10. Anyone who rises up to be a savior figure or one who ministers to people intercedes for those who are lower down. It's not just you're teaching them and you're helping them, but you're also praying for them. That's a dimension that's common. It's all the way through the Old Testament. You have King Hezekiah praying for his people's deliverance from the Assyrians who are sieging the city. You have the prophet Moses interceding with the Lord on behalf of his people who've transgressed. You have Christ praying to the Father on behalf of his disciples, praying for them that they may be one, that they may have peace, that not one will be lost, and so forth. And of course, you have heads of families praying for their children, a king praying for his people, someone in a superior position or in a higher position on the spiritual ladder praying for those below them. We assume that, in this case, somebody praying for Zion and Jerusalem would be the servant himself, or anyone who falls in the category of servant with him, the servants that we've already seen, beginning in chapter 54, where it starts mentioning servants of the Lord. In chapter 54, verse 17, it mentions the servants and their vindication. In chapter 56, it talks about the servants who love the name of the Lord, keep covenant with him, and hold fast to the covenant. After this chapter, it goes on mentioning servants as well. Things kind of come to a conclusion as far as the servants goes. In chapter 65, where it talks about the servants who will eat and drink and rejoice, while others who don't serve God will suffer covenant curses. It talks about servants in 65 saying that God will spare certain ones. He will not destroy them all because of his servants, or for the sake of his servants, or on behalf of his servants. Chapter 65, verse 8. Again, 63.17 talks about the Lord relenting, not judging his people so harshly for the sake of his servants, the tribes that are in inheritance. That identifies the servants there with the tribes. John the Revelator does that. He identifies 12,000 servants of God with each of the 12 tribes. The servants are like proxies for the people to whom they minister. They intercede with God on their behalf, on behalf of the people to whom they minister. God spares the people for their sake. And that follows the pattern of a Davidic king and the Davidic covenant, like King Hezekiah. According to the terms of the Davidic covenant, if the people are loyal to the king and keep his law, and the king is loyal to the Lord and keeps his law, then the Lord will extend his blessing and protection upon both king and people. He will extend it to the people for the king's sake, because of the righteousness of the king. And on that basis, no doubt, is why we have patriarchy and not matriarchy, because the husband's job is to intercede with God for those who are his, and to keep God's law as they keep his law. That's the pattern that God has set up for the blessing of his people. And it's a special role that's required of 
the head of a family or the king of a nation or the father of a people or the prophet in the case of Moses. It's a special role in law that's required of him that's not required of others. It involves paying a price like Hezekiah did and suffering certain things to back up your intercession. Hey, if you want this to happen and you're asking for me to bless these people, then you pay the price because they have been unfaithful to me. They may be faithful to you, but they've been unfaithful to me. So if you want mercy extended to them or some kind of deliverance, physical deliverance from destruction, then you pay the price. The law of justice must be met. The price of justice has to be paid by somebody at some time. That's where the idea of proxy salvation comes in, in a physical sense, in a political or temporal sense. We see that that is a type of Christ's own proxy suffering, as we saw in chapter 53, which extends to the spiritual salvation or spiritual deliverance, when it's combined with the proxy sacrifice of the animal that pays for the sin and dies for the person that has transgressed under the law of Moses. And this was going on here in chapter 62, verse 1. Someone is interceding with the Lord on behalf of Zion or Jerusalem. And he, no doubt, like a true proxy for them, is willing to pay the price too. He covenants with the Lord by sacrifice and pays the price, whatever the Lord requires of him, as he did of King Hezekiah, or as he did of Moses, or of anyone whose intercession is effective. He doesn't keep silent, he keeps on asking, like the importuning widow. And that's what Jesus taught in the New Testament. Ask and receive. Keep asking because eventually your prayer will be answered. It requires faith. It's not just a one-time shot at it and say, oh God, do that, and then just forget about it, because that's not faith. It's a challenge that the intercessor has to meet. And believing, not just praying and interceding, but believing that God will do it, because everything is done according to a person's faith. And so he keeps up his intercession, he keeps up his petition with God. He wants to see this thing fulfilled. He wants to see the full fruits of his labors. He doesn't want to see half of a redemption. He wants to see the whole redemption. He's not going to rest until the task is completed. Till her righteousness shines like a light, her salvation like a flaming torch. Till the salvation is complete. Till the righteousness is attained. That level of righteousness necessary for salvation is attained. And it happens. And that's the only way it happens. Till that servant or those servants are all fulfilling their intercessory roles with God and getting the work done together. The terms righteousness, light, and salvation are also metaphors describing the Lord's servant. At some point, his righteousness, or he as a person, will shine like a light. Well, he is the light. We saw that already. And her salvation, when the Lord comes, like a flaming torch. Remember the walls? He will set up salvation, his walls around the city. That's the Lord's presence. The flaming torch would be the cloud of glory that rests upon the people at the temple or over their congregation as they come in the Exodus. And it is imagery borrowed by Isaiah from the book of Genesis, where Abraham makes a covenant with the Lord by sacrifice. He has animals that symbolize his own personal sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself. Remember Abraham, his life was sought by the Babylonians to kill him, to offer him as a sacrifice on their altar. Abraham offered his life on the altar. He was willing to offer his son Isaac on the altar. The covenant by sacrifice will be required of the proxy. Abraham, in the book of Genesis, had these animals, symbolized his sacrifice. He divided them in half and laid them in kind of a line by his altar. And the Lord passed through the midst of them like a flaming torch. 
And it was the presence of the Lord as it was in the cloudy pillar. What it symbolized to Abraham was that if he did not keep covenant with the Lord, then let happen to me as happened to these beasts that were just cut up into two pieces. So there was a blessing and a curse attached to the covenant. Let me be like these slaughtered beasts that have been cut in half. Let me be like them if I don't keep my covenant and fulfill it to serve you all my days. And the Lord blessed that action, that ritual, that covenant, gory as it was, because the Lord knew of Abraham's serious commitment. It was no light thing that Abraham did. It was no menial thing to covenant with the Lord in that manner of covenant. That alludes to the fact that this proxy here, whoever he is, maybe the servant or the other servants, maybe 144,000 servants, are all making the same kind of covenant. It goes back to that flaming torch passing through the pieces of the animals. That's what kind of proxies they are. They're interceding with God. They're saying, let me be like that if we don't get this job done, if we don't covenant with thee and fulfill this task that you've given us. That is their righteousness. That is what's going to shine like a light. That is their salvation. That's going to bring the Lord's coming. That kind of valor in the service of God. Verse 2, The nations shall behold your righteousness, and all their rulers your glory. You shall be called by a new name, conferred by the mouth of the Lord. This glory doesn't just come, it's hard won, it's earned, it's merited. Glory comes upon the heels of righteousness, as these two things here, these two ideas here in parallel show us. Now these parallelisms, till her righteousness shines like a light, her salvation like a flaming torch, We have synonymous parallelisms and we have antithetical parallelisms. In a synonymous parallelism, we have two ideas that are presented in parallel lines like this, but the ideas are synonymous. One is almost equated with the other. In an antithetical parallelism, you have two opposite ideas parallel with each other by way of contrast to show that one is the opposite of the other. Two ideas. But these parallelisms here are complementary parallelisms. Righteousness is not the same as salvation. It is different. Righteousness is a precursor or precondition of salvation. It has to come first. It has to be established first so that salvation may come. There's no salvation for a wicked person. There's only salvation after righteousness qualifies that person. So it is with glory. The glory of the Lord comes to dwell among his people when they become righteous. It doesn't just pop out of the sky and it's there among the wicked. There are certain terms that must be met, certain covenantal laws that must be fulfilled. In this case, it includes the law of a higher covenant, the Davidic covenant, where we have a proxy or proxies of people interceding on their behalf. And then we have those people who are interceded for rising from a lower to a higher level than they were before. All of that's part of the scenario that's going on here. Nations shall behold your righteousness and their rulers your glory. You shall be called by a new name conferred by the mouth of the Lord, That is what happened to the servant in chapter 45. He's given a new name. He's named by the Lord. And now, because they follow the servant, because they're followers of righteousness, because they know righteousness, because he's their covenantal proxy, a mediator with a covenant, what happens to him happens to them. They're called by a new name too now. The Lord called him by a new name. Now he confers a new name upon them, the servant does. This new name is conferred by the mouth of the Lord, it says. But the mouth of the Lord is also his servant. He's God's mouthpiece to them. So he gives them the new name. The new name symbolizes ascent or rise to a higher level on the spiritual ladder. Every time 
you ascend a step up the spiritual ladder, you're a new person, you are reborn as some new entity. It's a new birth, and so you're given a new name. Every time you're born again, you get a new name. The new name, as far as the Lord's people as a whole are concerned, is this Zion or Jerusalem category. Before that, they were Israel or Jacob or Judah or some other name like that. But for someone who is already on that level and ascends to the next level, they're given a new name personally. Like each one of those 144,000 servants, according to John the Revelator, they're given a new name. The Lord's servant is called by a new name in chapter 49. It says Israel there, but that's only going back to the type of Jacob being called Israel. He was given his new name when he ascended the spiritual ladder. The servant is called Israel there, but that's not the literal name, that's just a type in the shadow of what his new name will be. What happens to him will be what happened to Jacob in the Old Testament. Abraham was also given a new name. His first name was Abram. Then it was changed to Abraham. That's when he rose a level on the spiritual ladder or was reborn or born on that level. He became a new person, a new creature. When Jesus talks about it in the New Testament, it's perfectly consistent with Isaiah's theology. In fact, he's talking about rising to a particular level, this very same level of being born again on a Zion or Jerusalem level. Verse 3, Then shall you be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the palm of your God. Now in chapter 61, we had more or less the spiritual aspect of the endowment. We have a spiritual endowment there. They're ordained priests. They're arrayed in priestly robes. They're called to a priestly position. They're to be ministers of God, priests of the Lord. Chapter 61, verse 6. And here, they're given a crown, and they are a crown. When a vassal king is given a new name, that means he accedes to royal status. He attains royal status. He is given a new name by the suzerain or emperor. The emperor grasped him by the hand and gave him a new name. He was adopted by the emperor as his servant or as his son. And he ruled as a vassal king under the emperor. He glorified the emperor because his righteous rule added to the emperor's glory. It extended his empire made it bigger. And if the emperor had had no empire, he wouldn't be an emperor. So the fact that this vassal king exists at all adds to the glory of the emperor. All of that's going on here. There's a political aspect covered here in chapter 62 that contrasts the spiritual endowment of spiritual aspect in chapter 61. That implies that those who ascend to this level, to the level where they are endowed as priests and crowned, means that they become kings and priests. And we have types of that in the Old Testament. King David was a king. King Hezekiah was a king. Aaron was a priest. In this latter-day exaltation of the Lord's people, these people become both kings and priests. They're both spiritual ministers after the pattern of Aaron. They're clothed in the robes of righteousness and priestly robes at the time that they are married or sealed in a marriage covenant. And they're also vassals to the Lord in a political sense. They're kings has to do with crowning and being given a new name. Then shall you be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the palm of your God. The hand of the Lord is the Lord's servant, and he's the one who ordained them priests. He's also the one who calls them by a new name and thus assigns them vassal status to the Lord. It glorifies God and it glorifies the servant. It's all part of a glorious work of salvation and exaltation, what it boils down to. Verse 4, you shall no more be called the forsaken one, nor your land referred to as desolate. You shall be known as she in whom I delight, and your land considered espoused. 
Again, alluding to the reversal of circumstances from a forsaken or desolate state, both people and their land, now becoming a delight like the bride whom the bridegroom delights in. He rejoices over her. He delights in her. She is his glory. She is his exaltation. And so it is here. From that forsaken and desolated state, the people are now raised to a higher level. Their circumstances are reversed. And this is a renewal of the covenant of the Lord and his people, simply, on a higher level than they were before. It involves the promised land. The land is now a blessed land. People come to this land from all around the world because it's where the Lord dwells himself. You shall be known as she in whom I delight, and your land considered a spouse. For the Lord shall delight in you, and your land shall be espoused. As a young man weds a virgin, so shall your sons wed you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Verses 4 and 5. The marriage covenant, of course, is all through the Old Testament prophets, used as a type for the Lord's covenant with his people. But here in a special sense, not just Israel, not just the Old Covenant of Sinai, which was a conditional covenant. This is now an unconditional covenant. These people on the Zion or Jerusalem level have proved their faithfulness to the Lord. And so he blesses them unconditionally. She is the woman that he marries. She's not going to fall away like his people did anciently, who were on the Israel level. She has proved herself faithful to him. In connection with that political aspect of endowments or of authorization, is the bride and bridegroom imagery. Those are word links and image links to chapter 61, verse 10. It says, He arrays me in a robe of righteousness like a bridegroom dressed in priestly attire or a bride adorned in her jewels. That bride and bridegroom imagery is associated both with the spiritual endowment and the political authorization or endowment. No one can be a king and a priest in the house of Israel or in Zion or in Jerusalem unless he's also married in the marriage covenant unless he's also sealed of God. As a young man weds a virgin, so shall your sons wed you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The sons wedding her may smack of incest, but it's referring to people coming back from exile, their sons and daughters, wedding the woman or renewing their covenant relationship with God, and they become part of his people. Chapter 49 Beginning verse 17, Your sons shall hasten your ravagers away, those who ruined you shall depart from you. Talking about the woman Zion and her children returning from among the nations. It says, Lift up your eyes and look around you. With one accord they gather and come to you. You shall adorn yourself with them all as with jewels. Bind them on you as does a bride. The children born during the time of your bereavement shall yet say in your ears, This place is too crammed for us. Give us place to settle. And you will say to yourself, Who bore me these while I was bereaved and barren? I was exiled, banished. By whom were these reared? When I was left to myself, where were they? Well, they were out in exile, and they returned to her in the end. So it is in chapter 62. Chapter 62, verse 6, I have appointed watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem, who shall not be silent day or night. You who call upon the Lord, let not up, nor give him respite, till he reestablishes Jerusalem and makes it renowned in the earth. This verse, verse 7, is very similar to verse 1. Who is it then that's calling upon the Lord day and night? The ones we talked about in verse 1. For Jerusalem and for Zion's sake, it is these watchmen. There are two kinds of watchmen in the book of Isaiah. The ones we saw in chapter 56, who are dumb watchdogs, unable to bark, who don't report trouble when they see it coming or they don't even see it. 
And they're the watchmen in chapter 52. They're the ones who proclaim the Lord's coming there. Hark, your watchmen lift up their voices when they cry out for joy, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord returns to Zion. Chapter 52, verse 8. These are the watchmen who report what they see and hear, meaning there are watchmen who don't report what they see and hear, if indeed they see it at all. The nature of these watchmen in chapter 62, verse 6, their role is also that of proxies or intercessors with God. They call upon the Lord, and they persist like the importuning widow. Don't let up. Don't give him any respite. Don't cease calling upon him, in other words, till he reestablishes Jerusalem and makes it renowned in the earth, till the goal is accomplished, till this whole mission, this whole scene is followed up on right through to the end. That's the plan. That's the whole plan. But it can't be accomplished without people like that doing that. It needs intercessors. It needs proxy saviors. It needs servants of God, not just one like Moses, but 144,000 or very many of them, like John says, to get this work done. So it becomes renowned in the earth. That's the same thing as becoming illustrious that we saw earlier. People become illustrious. The people and also the place where they live, Jerusalem. A city, because it says walls. The city that has salvation for its walls. Verse 8, The Lord has sworn by his right hand his mighty arm, I will no more let your grain be food for your enemies, nor shall foreigners drink the new wine you have toiled for. Those who harvest it shall eat it, giving praise to the Lord. Those who gather it shall drink it within the environs of my sanctuary. That is covenant blessing. In Deuteronomy 28, when the curses of the covenant come upon the people, they serve their enemies. They become the farmhands and vine dresses, chapter 61, verse 5, to aliens and to foreigners when they come into their power. Now the situation is reversed. Others become their farmhands and vine dressers. Their circumstances are reversed. Their grain was for their enemies, and foreigners drank the new wine that they toiled for. Where do we send our grain today? A lot of it? To our enemies, don't we? This is an answer to the prayer. When these people or the servant prays to the Lord, the Lord responds and answers the prayer. He doesn't just ignore them. These servants are on a very high spiritual level. Their prayers are effective with God, as Moses' prayer was effective with God. Or Abraham's prayer on behalf of the righteous in Sodom was effective with God. Abraham prayed for the deliverance of the righteous in Sodom, and the Lord delivered them. Delivered Lot and his two daughters. They were the only ones that were righteous. And says in the book of Genesis that the Lord saved Lot out of the overthrow for Abraham's sake. And so he delivers people here for his servants' sake. He swears by his right hand his mighty arm. That is the Lord's servant. He is the arm of righteousness. He's also the hand of the Lord, the right hand. Those are metaphors that describe him. It also implies intervention in the affairs of his people, using his servant as an instrument of intervention. When? When? That servant's own circumstances are reversed. Remember, he's abhorred, he's powerless for a long time, and the Lord empowers him, chapter 49 and endows him in chapter 55. And so when he says, by his right hand, his mighty arm, it's the same person, the same thing, but now empowered, mighty arm, not puny arm. You remember where he was endowed in chapter 49 with power? It says, For I won honor in the eyes of the Lord when my God became my strength. Because he's pleading with the Lord, saying, I've labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing, to no purpose. He's kind of bewailing the fact that he's not getting anywhere in the service of God. And then the Lord reverses his circumstances and empowers him. 
and says, It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore those preserved of Israel. I will also appoint you to be a light to the nations that my salvation may be to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who is despised as a person, who is abhorred by his nation. Rulers shall rise up when they see you. Heads of state shall prostrate themselves because the Lord keeps faith with you because the Holy One of Israel has chosen you. Sometime his whole situation is reversed and he becomes illustrious. That's also in chapter 52 where the servant was marred beyond human likeness. People were appalled at him and yet he becomes exceedingly eminent and astounds many nations and their rulers shut their mouths at him. Chapter 52 verses 13 through 15. In chapter 62, verse 8, it is the servant already endowed with power to do these things and to intercede with God. His intercession is mighty with God. And God does things for the servant's sake, does things for his people for the servant's sake. Reverses their circumstances. They were subservient to their enemies. Now their enemies become subservient to them. Those who harvest it shall eat it. That's covenant blessing. Meaning they have a promised land. Harvest implies covenantal blessing. They praise God for it. Where? Within the environs of his sanctuary. So they inherit the promised land where the temple of God is, where the Lord dwells, in that blessed land of Zion. Verse 10, Pass on, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, excavate, pave the highway, clear of stones, raise the ensign to the nations. The Lord has made proclamation to the end of the earth. Tell the daughter of Zion, See, your salvation comes, his reward with him, his work preceding him. This harks back to chapter 40, this cross-reference here, verses 3 through 5, where there is one who prepares the way before the coming of the Lord. The Lord is salvation. He personifies salvation. He's it. Of course, the name Jesus means salvation. Yeshua means salvation. It's not the same word as Joshua, which is Yehoshua, the verb, the Lord will save. Yeshua, the name Jesus, is the noun, salvation. Some people get confused on that subject. There is a way prepared here for the people that they might welcome their king, the Lord, who comes on the highway, and that they may go to meet him on that highway. And someone is excavating and paving a highway cleared of stones. Stones are what? Stones are the common variety of people, the sinners, the sinner category. The category is being destroyed. They have to be moved out of the way. They have to be got rid of. How do we get rid of stones? Well, we upgrade them If people will repent and ascend to the next level, then they can be there to receive their king. But if they don't, they must be thrown away. They must be removed. Just like you get rid of stones out of a garden. Or when you're making a road, you get rid of boulders and things. Clear them out. Because only those who will receive the Lord will be left around. This kind of goes back to the imagery of chapter 35, verse 8, where it says, There shall be highways and roads which shall be called the way of holiness, for they shall be for such as are holy. The unclean shall not traverse them, on them shall no reprobates wander. And this is the way of return. The ransom of the Lord shall return, they shall come singing to Zion. Zion is where the Lord comes. All of this is a preparatory work. Who is making this proclamation to the end of the earth? Telling the daughter of Zion, see your salvation comes, his reward with him, his work preceding him. Well, the servant does. He's the forerunner. It doesn't just happen spontaneously that the people get themselves ready by themselves on their own bat. Somebody comes along like Moses and delivers them from bondage, from blindness, from being oppressed by the wicked and preaches to them, teaches them the law of the covenant, acts as a mediator of the covenant like Moses did on behalf of his people and 
gets them ready for seeing God, meeting God. That's what Moses wanted to do in the Sinai wilderness, wasn't it? He wanted to prepare the people to meet God, to see God. Did any of them do it? Moses did, and 70 of the elders went up on the mount and saw the God of Israel, ate bread with him, and that was all. But that was the type and shadow of what was to come. Moses wasn't able to do it in his day, but Isaiah predicts that in the end of days, those people who come under the category of Zion will meet God. That has always been the goal, to lift people up to that higher level. Pass on, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people. That's what prophets did. They went through the gates, preaching to the people at the gates, giving them the word of the Lord by way of oracles. This is the kind of thing that this prophet or this servant is doing. He's paving the way. Raise the ensign to the nations, it says. And he is the ensign that the Lord raises up in chapter 11, verses 10 and 12. It calls him the ensign. The ensign rallies the Lord's people to covenant with the Lord. He rallies them to return from exile. His mission is a universal mission to all the nations of the earth. And they come from the four directions in chapter 11. Chapter 11 talks about the sprig of Jesse who stands for an ensign to the peoples. He'll be sought by the nations He's also called the hand there. He says he will raise the ensign to the nations, assemble the exile of Israel. He will gather the scattered of Judah from the four directions of the earth. And they come in an exodus there in chapter 11, verse 15 and 16. There shall be a pathway out of Assyria and all those countries that are mentioned there, where the remnant of his people who shall be left as they was for Israel when it came up from the land of Egypt. All of that is the work of the servant when the Lord commissions him as an ensign to the nations. He is the ensign. Also, his precepts, that is, the terms of the covenant, are also an ensign to the nations. That is what he preaches. He is the covenant himself. He's appointed as a covenant, which implies his mediating the Lord's covenant with his people. The Lord has made proclamation to the end of the earth, because the servant's mission extends to the end of the earth. He's commissioned to preach to the ends of the earth, and he's the one who proclaims it. Tell the daughter of Zion, the daughter of Zion being Neo-Zion, we might call it, There was a Zion anciently, and there is going to be a Zion again in the latter days. And they are the Lord's bride, the woman Zion, the daughter of Zion. See, your salvation comes, of course, upon the heels of righteousness, not by itself, spontaneously. His reward is with him, his work precedes him. The reward of righteousness and also the reward of wickedness, because his coming is twofold, remember? It signals destruction of the wicked, but deliverance of the righteous. It also says his work precedes him. It says that also in chapter 40, verse 10, which is talking about the Lord's coming, it says there, My Lord Jehovah comes with power. His reward is with him. His work precedes him. The work that precedes him is the preparatory work of preparing a people, Zion, for the coming of the Lord. The paving of the highway among them. The clearing of all that's not acceptable. These people must repent and be cleansed. And they must be sanctified in order to meet him, meet God. That's the work that precedes him. It's the work of righteousness. They shall be called the holy people, verse 12, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be known as in demand, a city never deserted. Because you were not in demand before, you were abhorred, you were despised, you were in a state of covenant curse, you were the lowest rung of society, you were the ones everybody looked down upon. You were always deserted. Your city had lain desolate for years. Now, it's a city that's never deserted, and you are highly in demand. Again, the reversal of circumstances. They shall be called the holy people because they emulated the Holy One of Israel in that attribute. 
He was the Holy One of Israel, and they used him as their exemplar. They became holy or sanctified or consecrated. The redeemed of the Lord, because those are the ones that he can redeem. When they do their part, he can redeem them.